0: Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. And say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to your word expectant. God, we believe that through Your Word, we hear Your voice. By Your Spirit, speaking to the church throughout the ages, Lord. God, this Word of Yours that came to Haggai and came to the people of Israel at this time and place, Lord, has been read and repeated and studied and has encouraged countless people and churches throughout the centuries, Lord. And so we just enter into that space and ask that your word would speak to us today. God, it's not lost on us how easy it would be to relate to these words. But God, I pray that you would teach us what you have for us today, Lord. And may we not only receive it and believe it, God, but may we go here and do it and live in light of it. Holy Spirit, come and, and teach your people today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, I have been battling seasons of discouragement over the last couple of years. Discouragement is nothing new to me, it's nothing new to any of us. We go through seasons of discouragement. And discouragement is a sneaky, sneaky critter. We can feel like we're doing well, warding off discouragement. It's like that game whack-a-mole It pops its head up and you knock it back down and you can feel like you're ruling over it. Like no discouragement you know, I can keep that at bay, but after a while, it just kind of builds behind the scenes and it, it keeps popping its head up and you whack it back down. But eventually you end up being like, you know, those cartoons where they've got a finger and a toe and they're trying to keep water from coming into the boat and they're just trying to plug everything. And eventually it just sometimes becomes too much to bear. It creeps in. and We find ourselves overwhelmed in seasons of discouragement. And through our text today, I believe that God has something to say to the discouraged heart. But first, we need a little context to understand what's going on here, to bring this passage to life a little bit. Haggai is written to the returning... Israelites from exile. They've been in exile in Babylon for 70 years. God removed them from their land and Persia and and Cyrus, the king of Persia, overthrows Babylon and decides that Israel should be allowed to return to their homeland and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so this was a miraculous thing. People don't lose their homelands and then get them back. And so this was a miraculous thing. The the Israelites were uh, excited about this, and they came back in three different waves. The first wave of exiles returning was led by this man, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is from the line of David, and so he is bringing this group of exiles back to the land to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And the Old Testament books that record this season in history are Ezra and Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. They all take a little bit different angle on what is happening in Jerusalem when they returned. But one passage in particular is significant for us today. Ezra chapter 3 describes the returning exiles and all of their wide range of emotions. You see the priests and Levites and all the people got together and they began rebuilding the temple. And they rebuilt the foundation of the temple. They didn't even get to the walls and everything. They're just rebuilding the foundation of the temple. And when they build the foundation of the temple, they, they they celebrate it. They dedicate it according to God's word in the past. And they throw this celebration. And we're told in Ezra chapter 3 that there was loud shouts of rejoicing. That the people were excited for what they were watching happen. But there was this group, this older generation that was with the people who were children when Israel was taken into exile, who remembered the former temple that was in the land. And they looked and they saw that the temple foundation was significantly smaller than they remember, and they wept aloud. And Ezra says that at this celebration, there were loud shouts of rejoicing and loud lamenting such that the two were indistinguishable from one another. They returned with a wide range of emotions. For some, this was an incredible moment. God was working miraculously in world events To give his people a home again. And they were excited. And there were those that remembered the good old days. And they saw that things were not the same. And they were discouraged. Haggai says that the people eventually became so discouraged that they left off building the temple altogether. People were saying, It's not time yet to build the temple. We don't have the resources that we need to build the temple. We don't have the silver and the gold that filled the temple. And so we're not going to busy ourselves with it now. And so God sends Haggai with a message. In Haggai chapter one, God calls the people to build. He says, are you going to live in your furnished houses and, and, and build those but not build my house that lays in in ruins? No, come on, get up and get to work. Go and, and build. And they do. They respond for a month. And then they get discouraged again and they leave off building again. They rallied at first, but after a while they ran out of gas. See, discouragement popped its head up. They were encouraged to combat it. They did, but it kept popping its head up and they left off building. Discouragement is sneaky. But church, we know where it comes from. We know where discouragement comes from. Sometimes it comes from circumstances that feel insurmountable from from something in our way that we, we, we need to get through, we need to get past, we need to accomplish, and yet we can't seem to accomplish it. We can't yet seem to do the thing that we believe we should be able to do. The returning exiles are trying to build a temple that took Solomon seven years to build. And he had all of the pieces and the instructions just ready for him. It was like the perfect Lego set that his father had bought him and now he just needed to put it together. And he had the the, the skilled craftsman to build the temple. He had everything ready for him and it took seven years to build. But these returning exiles had been working for a month, they didn't have everything ready for them. They didn't have the lumber. They didn't have the stone. They didn't have the gold and the silver. They didn't have what they felt that they needed. All they had was this mountain of rubble. They had to to clear everything away before they could even begin building and they were discouraged. I walked into our new office space the other day, so encouraged that we've got this new beautiful office space that God's provided us for ministry throughout the week. And I walked in and I felt like I just walked into a pile of rubble. You know how it is when you move and it's just boxes and you're literally climbing over boxes to find that one thing that you need. We were looking for kids ministry check-in supplies this morning and literally like I'm standing on top of tables, like pulling things away. It's just rubble we got to clear the rubble away before we can start putting things together. And sometimes it can be discouraging when the obstacles in our way feel insurmountable. But sometimes it's not just our circumstances that bring discouragement. A lot of times it's our internal expectations that our circumstances should be different. Let me give you an example. Not a single person in this room, I am guessing, would be discouraged at the fact that you cannot lift 500 pounds or run a two-minute mile. No one's discouraged by that because no one expects that of you. You don't expect yourself to run a two-minute mile, and so it's not discouraging. That is an insurmountable obstacle, and yet it's not discouraging. It's when you think you should be able to do something you have an expectation that something should be able to be accomplished or that it should be different, that we get discouraged. See, it's the older generation in Ezra who wept because they remembered what the temple was like. Their expectations were formed by previous experience, and so it's difficult for them to see in this new season through the same eyes that the younger generation has who have no expectations built on the past. So we've got a wide variety of people with us today. We've got people in this room, folks who were here on day one of Reality Carpinteria. We've got folks in this room who didn't start coming to reality until less than two and a half years ago, which is a very different season for our church than the early years. We've got folks who last Sunday was their first Sunday with us. And we've got people today, I'm guessing, I see some faces I don't recognize, this might be your first day with us. And you've got no idea the story that you are a part of. But we have experience from the past. We've got stories we 've got testimonies, some of us got together on Wednesday night and shared testimonies of all the beautiful things that God had done in our church and we gave thanks and praise to god and we can 't help but be informed our expectations for the future can't help but be informed by what we 've experienced in the past. There are some of you who are excited about the future, and there are some of you who aren 't quite sure yet, and some of you who might be having a hard time there's a place for everybody here remember Ezra there was joy and there was lamenting such that it was indistinguishable even though they were having a wide variety of experiences they were heard as one voice Regardless of what you came in with today, when we sang in the opening set of worship and when we sing at the close, we will sing with one voice, with sometimes very different heart postures, but we will sing together and we will be unified in that. The same was true for Israel in this wide variety of emotions, but discouragement eventually began to win them over. And here in Haggai chapter 2, they are looking at what they believe to be a small, inglorious house. And they're wondering if things will ever be the same and wondering whether or not God is still with them. We know that they're wondering that because that is what exactly God encourages them with. They're wondering, has God left us? So isn't it good that our God speaks to the discouraged heart? See, in life we will experience seasons of discouragement, whether it's because of insurmountable obstacles or our expectations that tell us our circumstances should be different. There will be times when you feel the wind sucked from your sails and feel lifeless and feel like giving up. But God speaks to our discouraged heart. Not only does he speak to our discouraged hearts, we need to know that God is not only aware of our circumstances, he's aware of how we feel about our circumstances, and he is with us in our circumstances. Listen to what he says through Haggai. He says to them, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? See, as Christians, we believe that God is sovereign, that he is in control of the heavens and the earth. He rules over time and space and is intimately involved in every circumstance, every detail. He is sovereign. And so sometimes it is that sovereignty of God that causes us in seasons of discouragement or seasons of pain or seasons of heartbreak cause us to rush very quickly to perspective. We love to give perspective, right? But when you're suffering, how helpful is it ever when someone comes to you and says, could be worse, it's never helpful. Okay. How helpful is it? Not how true is it? How helpful is it when you are in the throes of grief? I remember when my father passed away and a well-meaning friend says, God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Absolutely true. Not helpful in that moment. It actually made me feel like I wasn't allowed to hurt that I should just be grateful that God is going to do something good in this. God is still undoing that lie in my heart, teaching me that it is still okay to hurt. It's okay to be discouraged. It's okay to grieve. See, when we rush to perspective too quickly, we miss out on the opportunity to commune with God in the grief. To actually experience the presence of God in the discouragement. To know that God not only wants to call us out of the discouragement and give us hope, but he wants to be with us in the discouragement. It's like when you fall down as a kid and you scrape your knee and you get hurt. The encouragement isn't, it'll feel better when it quits hurting. No, it's, I'm here. I'm with you. A parent comforts their child with their presence. If we rush to perspective too quickly, we miss out on the opportunity to commune with God in our circumstances and in our feelings about our circumstances. Notice God doesn't say, Why are you even sad, bro? Don't you you know I'm sovereign? He doesn't come to them and say, look how great this house is. I didn't like silver and gold. I much prefer like stone finishes. This temple's way better than the last temple. Suck it up. No, that's not what God says. He says, look at this house. He draws their attention to the very thing they're discouraged by. Look at this house. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He's with them in it. He draws their attention to it. He's aware of how they feel about it. God says, I know how you feel. I know that you're discouraged. I know you remember the past. And I know that in comparison, this season doesn't feel the same. So however you're feeling today, which is really kind of funny to me personally. I just want to be honest. I've confessed my history is not in 52516th Street. I've wanted to, to bear the emotional burden with you all in this, and I know that today feels like displacement. It feels different. Maybe it even feels like a downgrade. I just want to draw attention to how beautiful this place is. Okay, this place is gorgeous. This church is full of history and beauty and, and men and women who love Jesus. It is an incredible place that has been used for God's glory, will continue to be used for God's glory. The only reason it feels different to us or maybe feels like uh, uh, less than if it does at all is just because we're not used to it. This place is gorgeous, but it's different. It's like mom's spaghetti. Could be delicious. It's not the same. Sorry, my mom's sitting right there. Hers is the best. Okay? It's different. It's different. So however you're feeling, God knows and he cares for us in it. And he is with us in our circumstances. He gives three commands to the leaders and to all of the people. He says, be strong, work, fear not. But their assurance doesn't come from what he tells them to do. These commands are received in the context of God's presence. Listen, he says, I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. In the New Testament, we have Jesus in Matthew 28, who says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Sorry, in Matthew 28, he says, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. It's because of God's presence with the people that they can receive and respond to his instruction with confidence. It's because of God's presence that went with Moses and before Moses that Moses could say, okay, we'll go. He says, if you don't go with us, I ain't going. You can't make me go. If you don't go, we're not going. But because God's presence goes with them, they can enter any season. And so he says, be strong, right? I am with you. Be strong. Think of Joshua after Moses died, who had to take the children of Israel into the promised land. And there was concerns that he wasn't going to be as good of a leader as Moses. There was fears that he wasn't going to be as wise as Moses. And God says to Joshua in Joshua 1, 5 through 6, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you be strong and courageous in the same way god's telling the remnant of israel i'm with you be strong and courageous reality carpentry i am with you be strong and courageous fear not We know from Nehemiah that the children of Israel, when they were returning back to the land, were afraid of the peoples of the surrounding regions. Nehemiah records that they were being mocked, ridiculed, threatened. And they said that while they were building the walls of the city, many of them did so with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Just working and warring. Fighting off the attacks while building what God had called them to build. God says, don't be afraid. My spirit is still in your midst. Be strong. Fear not. But the central command of this passage is not be strong. It's not fear not. The central command of this passage is work. Work. Build the temple. Clear the rubble. Stack the stones, Zerubbabel, Joshua, get the people back to work. See, when we're discouraged, you're working on a project. You run into a speed bump. You get discouraged. What happens so often? You just take your foot off of the gas. You leave it alone. And if you're me, project never gets finished. We take our foot off the gas. We're tempted to coast or quit. But God says, work, I'm with you. In this season of church, maybe you're tempted to wait and see how this all plays out before you really know how you're going to feel about it. That'll kill this church. If you sit back and wait and see, well, I'm just going to... I'm not going to serve yet. I'm going to wait and see what happens, or I'm not going to contribute yet. I'm going to wait and see what happens. I'm just going to stand back. I'm, you know, I'm a little gun shy. Yeah, I've got some, you know, I've got some, some concerns. If, If you in this season take a step back and wait to see how this plays out, it ain't gonna, it's not gonna play out. This is not a time to step back. This is a time to invest. This is a time to go all in. This is a time to contribute. It is a time to be strong. It is a time to be courageous. It is a time to band together and to build together. Because if we commit together to do the work, then you will see God do something that you couldn't possibly imagine. Now is a time to work. Now is a time to build. Now is a time to invest and contribute and serve and disciple. Now is a time to love one another. Now is a time to show compassion to one another. Now is a time to invest in one another's lives. Now is a time to get some skin in the game and build God will do something greater than we could possibly imagine. And that's what we see in the text. God gives them hope for the future. Listen to what he says in Haggai 2, 6-9. through For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God says to the Israelites, I am going to work in such a way in human history that I will provide everything you need for the temple resources, all the silver, all the gold, everything that could be required to build the temple, I will provide. I'm going to get it from the pagan nations, he says. I'm going to shake the nations and all of their treasures are going to come into Jerusalem. And the people would have context for this. You know, God has done this multiple times when he led the people out of egypt he told the israelites go knock on your neighbor's doors and ask them for their jewelry and so they did and they just gave them their jewelry and scripture says in this way the israelites plundered the egyptians their slaves plundered them went out in the wilderness and guess what they used to build the tabernacle all the jewelry Egypt funded the building of the tabernacle. Then again, when it was time to build the temple and David is preparing everything for Solomon, he knocks on the doors of the neighboring regions and says, give me your lumber, give me your stone, give me all of your resources. And he puts them all in a nice little pile with the instructions and gives them to Solomon. And Solomon built the temple with foreign pagan nations resources. And here... In Haggai, he says, I'm going to shake the nations and I'm going to make them, their treasures, come in. That's exactly what happened. The king of Persia conquered the then known world and this pagan king took the resources of all of these nations and funneled them to Jerusalem and furnished the house of God with gold and silver and everything that they needed. This prophecy was fulfilled But there is more to come because after the Persian Empire, the Greeks conquered and after the Greeks, the Romans conquered. And the Romans set up King Herod as a puppet king in Jerusalem. And in order to get on the good side of the Jewish people, he took the temple grounds. He expanded them beyond what it had ever been under Solomon and filled it with all kinds of gold and treasures and value. It became something so much bigger and grander and more splendor than anyone could ever possibly imagine. And yet, the glory of Herod's temple couldn't compare to what was coming. See, Jesus would step foot into Herod's temple. Jesus would come and he would walk into that temple, this grand, glorious monument. And he did not like what he saw. He saw people exploiting The temple he saw people taking advantage of the religious fervor of the people and so he overthrew the the tables he he overturned the tables and he drove the people out who were taking advantage of them and he said my father's house shall be a house of prayer for all nations but you have turned it into a den of robbers he didn't like what was taking place inside those beautiful walls And when the religious authorities came to him and asked him what gave him the authority to do all these things, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they laughed at him. It took Solomon seven years to build it. This is a weird thing in the passage in in John. It took Solomon seven years to build the the temple, but for some reason, the Pharisees go, it took our fathers 43 years. I don't quite understand what that means, whether they were exaggerating, but they're like, it took them a long time. How are you going to do it in three days? Seven years, 43 years, it didn't matter. That's not what Jesus was talking about. His disciples remembered after he died and was raised from the dead, this saying, and they realized that he was talking about his body. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And he was crucified and he was killed and he was buried. And three days later, he rose from the grave. And we know from Matthew twelve that Jesus said at another time, He said, Something is greater than something greater than the temple is here. What does Jesus mean by that? How can a man be greater than the temple? Where countless multitudes met with the presence of God. See, so scripture teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. A temple is where God and humans meet. And so now, God and humanity meet in the person of Jesus. And through faith, we're told that the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people. That God is not just with us, but because of the Spirit, He dwells within us. As God dwelled within the walls of the Holy of Holies within the temple, now the Holy Spirit through those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is poured out into us and we have the Spirit of God, the presence of God in us. No longer do we have to go to a temple to commune with God. We go to Jesus and the best news of all is that Jesus came to us. Jesus came to us, and so when we gather together those, the body of Christ, who have the Holy Spirit, we commune in the presence of God together. Something greater than the temple is here. His name is Jesus, and everyone who has trusted in Him is said to have become a temple of the Holy Spirit. He has made His dwelling in you. Now let's put this in context of what we're talking about. Okay, Israel's building a temple, right? In Haggai. We're in a situation where we're building a church. So how do you build a church? It's not with stones. It's with one another. See, anytime you do anything that affects anyone who has the Holy Spirit, you should do it with the passion and the love and the dedication as those God called to build his temple. One of my favorite stories in all the Bible is in uh, Exodus 37. Bezalel is building the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the most holy relic in all of Israel, where the Spirit of God would dwell between the wings of the cherubim. It was the most precious, valuable thing in all of Israel. And I have to imagine what it was like for him to be commissioned with that project and the care, and the passion, and the love. Every hammer stroke. Every, 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 I don't even know how to craft things. I don't even know the words. Everything that he did to make it. The love and the care. That's how we should care for one another, recognizing we are caring for the people of God, where the Spirit of God dwells. And so the way we will build this church is by building one another up. The way we will build this church is by loving one another. The way we will build this church is by sharing with one another, by serving with one another. The way we will build this church is ultimately by trusting Jesus to build his own church. And we just do what he has told us to do, which is make disciples, love one another, be unified Preach the gospel. I went back and listened to the very first sermon ever, pre- ever preached at Reality Carpinteria last Saturday. Before Pastor Britt ever got into the sermon, he gave a, a little intro on what kind of church this was going to be. And he said, this church is going to be about community. Okay, It's going to be about relationships with one another. And it's going to be about the community of Carpinteria. He said this place is going to be about sharing, serving one another. He specifically called out what I believe he called pew potatoes. Okay. It's going to be a very uncomfortable place for people who just want to sit here and not do anything. He said, it's going to be about prayer. It's going to be about worship church. Nothing's changed. Okay. It's about community. We're going to love one another. We're going to serve one another. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to build one another up. It's going to be a very difficult place to be if you don't want to actually be in community and don't actually want to be loved and don't actually want to love one another. The way we will go forward, the way we will build, is by caring for each other. And if we're committed to be the church, And it won't matter one bit where we meet. Listen, I don't want a building for our church if the people who meet within those walls don't want to be the church. Why? What's the point? Okay, we are not going to be about a church building. We are going to be about church building and investing, and loving, and encouraging, and growing in maturity, and celebrating victories in one another's lives, and weeping with those who weep, and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And it's tempting to think that if we do all of these things, if we follow this formula, if we're strong, and we fear not, and we work, then the glory of this house will one day be greater than its former glory. But there is a danger anytime we read a passage that we feel like we relate a little too much to. This passage wasn't written to us. It was written to Israel. But it was written for us. It was written for our instruction. It was written for our encouragement. It was written to teach us what God is like. And the same God who was with them when they returned from exile is with us today. Are the best years of reality carpenteria ahead of us? I believe they are. I truly, honestly believe that the best years of reality carpenteria are ahead of us, but I believe that they will be different than you or I expect. I believe it will be different. But it's not why we work. We don't work to restore the past or we don't work... To pursue a greater glory that would misunderstand what God has done. See, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've received the greater glory. Okay, we have the greater glory in Christ and there's a future kingdom yet to come and he has prepared a place for us so we're not working for glory as if something still needed to be accomplished we are working from glory the hope and the glory and the good that we have already received we don't need to worry about what's coming we have it so we overflow In worship, we overflow in one another's lives. And so the work that we do in one another is to help let that glory out to become less, to decrease so that God in us may increase, to let it shine. And as God gathered the silver and the gold from the nations, we know that as we go out and proclaim Jesus and love people in Jesus' name, that he will not just bring the treasures of nations, he will bring the people from every tribe, tongue, and nation into the house of God to worship and glorify Jesus together. We know that this is what will happen we read about it in revelation chapter 7 this is nothing we need to be concerned about this is nothing we need to wonder about be uncertain about it will be finished that the the, the greatest glory is not gold and silver from all of these nations The greatest glory are when God's people gather around the throne and enter into that chorus of angels that has been singing for eternity in the throne room of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Jesus will be glorified. To Jesus be all glory and honor and praise in the church and in the world and in Carpentaria, the coastlands and the nations forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we ask that you will build your church. God, we ask that with these living stones that are being built together into a spiritual house, Lord, that you would allow us, Reality Carpinteria, to see what you are doing, to experience what you are doing, to be built up together. God, and I pray that right now where we are hopeful, that we would know you are with us in it and where we are discouraged, that we would know that you are with us in it, where we are fearful, where we're sorrowful. God, that we would know that you are with us in it. Lord, we want to experience your presence that doesn't dictate to us how we should feel, But we want to experience your presence simply that you are with us in what we're feeling. And God, that you would build us as you desire. And right now, Lord, I pray that you would even give us a glimpse of that future glory as we entered into the throne room and and, and worship you together, that we would enter that choir of angels. And cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that we would experience the goodness and beauty of your love and your presence. Pray that you would do that in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.